He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He then told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows is the good seed. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, it's already been a great weekend here in this room. Um, it's already been a great weekend here in this building. A lot of great fun, as Mary Jane described, at the youth retreat. And a few people got a few hours of sleep here in this building. And some people got no sleep here in this building. They were having so much fun. And there have been some good teachings from God's Word and some sweet times of praying for each other and opening up lives and singing to God in praise and worship and then going back to praying for one another and then getting in huddles of friends and praying together more. God has already done sweet things here in this building. And so if you were here as a youth, you know that already. Um, And if you were here as a youth, I'm going to do my best to talk to you once in a while to help you stay awake because I know that you didn't sleep a lot this weekend. Um, But if you're a youth and you weren't here, um, let me just say God's already been doing great things. And I hope and expect he'll continue to do so today. We're continuing on in our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, which tells us about Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to make disciples of Jesus. And we've spent now three weeks here in Matthew chapter 13, which describes these parables that Jesus tells. But Matthew chapter 13 also tells us this surprising fact that Jesus, for all of his love, And Jesus, for all of his dynamic demonstrations of miraculous healing power, and Jesus, for all of his fascinating teaching, Jesus, for many people, had this effect on them that is named in verse 57. People take offense at him. For all of his love, for all of his power, for all of his dynamic teaching, this was the effect on many people. And specifically, this was the effect even on people who grew up around him, like his four brothers and his sisters and to some degree his mom and and people who know them. And this is the effect on people who know his brothers, who know his mom, who knew him growing up. This is the effect. They see his love. They see his power. They hear his teaching and they are offended by him. Which leaves this resounding question at this point in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why are so many people offended at him? If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why do so few people end up following him? If Jesus really is the Messiah then why does his kingdom look so small and insignificant in the world? If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why is the whole world so full of evil and darkness and things that don't look like the kingdom of God? And these parables that are gathered here in Matthew chapter 13 answer those questions in various ways. Today we'll especially pay attention to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, sometimes known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in this parable about the wheat, we'll learn something important about the Son of Man, something important about the world. Something important about the Lord's plan and something important about our task. Let's dive in. Point number one is this. The Son of Man has a mission here 
in this world that we live in. The Son of Man has a mission here in this world. We see that especially begin at the right at the beginning of the parable about the wheat in verse 24. The first movement of Jesus' parable involves a good farmer planting for a good crop. And who is this good farmer who plants for a good crop? In verse 37... As Jesus begins to explain the parable about the wheat and the weeds. He says the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, as we have read through this far in Matthew's gospel. Or if you go home and read some of Jesus' own sayings as they're recorded in the New Testament, you'll realize very quickly that Jesus frequently refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why? It's not simply a way of saying that he really is human. There's something with roots going back deep into the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament That is called to mind whenever Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14, we read these important prophetic words from the Old Testament that say, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When we think about some of the themes that are spoken of there in Daniel chapter 7, the theme of God's kingdom which lasts forever, And the theme of God's kingdom, which will not be localized just to a few people from one language group, or just a few people from one ethnic group, or just a few people who live in one part of the planet, but God's kingdom, which will have something to do with a dominion that spreads into every people group, and every nation. And every language group or every ethnic group on the face of this earth. This isn't stuff that Jesus just made up and invented in the days of the New Testament. This was part of God's design. Going back to the very beginning. And whenever Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man... He's calling to mind this wider redemptive plan that the Ancient of Days has been working out for many generations. And he ties himself into this great story of redemption that has been unfolding. This great story of redemption in which one known as the Son of Man will be the king over a kingdom that will have no end and a kingdom that knows no borders and no ethnic boundaries. A kingdom in which people from every tribe and language and people and nation will come to serve him. The Son of Man has a mission in this world. Jesus entered this world and to be sure, He teaches us about ethics and how to live in this life. 
came on a mission to unlock something in a story that's far bigger than just how you and I live our lives. He came on a mission to gather for himself a people who would be purchased by his own blood from every people, language, tribe, and nation. The Son of Man has a mission in this world. And that's why he's described as planting good seed in a field as wide as the world itself. But we move on quickly to a second point here. The Son of Man has a mission in this world. But a second point that we need to notice is this. Our world is awfully mixed up right now. According to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That sower is the Son of Man and that field is the world. But verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. You see, the second major movement in this parable is this. In the time in between the planting and the harvest, in the time in between an enemy plants other crops. He plants them in the very same field, throughout the very same world in which the Son of Man is working out his redemptive mission. And the result is a kind of mixture of crops growing up side by side and sometimes in ways that are intertwined in our life in this world. The result is that our world is a mixed bag of humanity. The result is that our world is all mixed up. We noticed two weeks ago that the context of Matthew 13 is many people rejecting Jesus. Just like people from his own hometown, as we heard earlier. And it raises this question, why, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, why is there so much evil still all around us? And in this parable, Jesus gives us a couple pieces of the puzzle. Maybe not the full answer. But he gives us a couple important pieces of the puzzle toward answering such questions. First of all, he tells us that our current place in history is a part of a much wider story. And secondly, he tells us there are multiple characters acting in this story. In other words, if we look around right now and we try to measure the goodness of God... And if we try to measure the extent of Jesus' redemption merely by what we can observe around us right now, we're not getting the whole picture, are we? Because we're only seeing one snapshot in a much wider film. And in any case, what we see is not only the work of the Messiah but also the work of his enemy. In Jesus' story, good crops represent those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Good crops represent people, sons and daughters of the kingdom, planted and nourished by the Son of Man himself. But what are the other crops in Jesus' story? According to verse 38, these other crops represent, quote, sons of the evil one. That is, the devil. And that description might sound kind of uncomfortable to our ears. 
to refer to people as sons of the devil? And when we think of sons of the evil one, maybe we, maybe we only think of some of the most evil and unjust rulers that we read about in history. Or maybe we only think about people who look and act totally wicked, like in every way. People who revel in violence. But remember this. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to upstanding, moral, religious people who have good family values and who love to be at the prayer meetings. And when Jesus speaks to these upstanding, moral, religious people with good family values who love to be at the prayer meetings, Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. And he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, to be a child of the devil may not mean being the most wicked person in your neighborhood. In the perspective of Jesus, it may simply mean living your life blinded by the enemy who is a master of deception and falsehood and lies. As a result, in our experience, if we just kind of look around and try to sort out which crops are the good crops and which crops are the bad crops, we might have a hard time distinguishing between the two. And in fact, that's built into the way that Jesus' parable works. I discovered this week that Jesus' language is a little more specific than I had noticed in my previous readings of this. There's a little footnote uh, for me in verse 25 after the word weeds that tells me, at least in my copy of the Bible, that those weeds are probably Darnell. In the Greek language that Matthew's Gospel was originally written in, the enemy's plants are not just any old kind of weed, they are specifically Zizanian weeds, sometimes called Darnell, sometimes known as false wheat. It's a kind of ryegrass that looks very, very similar to wheat at first. But when it's full grown, instead of producing healthy grain that is nourishing and delicious, it produces a grain that can be intoxicating in small quantities or even poisonous in large quantities. The internet tells me, for whatever that's worth, (laughs) that in French, this kind of plant is called, quote, drunken wheat. It looks very similar at first to a good crop. But in the end, it will be revealed that it is totally different. Jesus, through this parable, is helping us understand our experience of life in this mixed up world. He's helping us understand our experience. See, the more evil that we see around us in this life, it does not prove that Jesus was wrong. The more that we see evil growing up around us in this life, instead of proving that Jesus was wrong, it actually proves that Jesus understood this world accurately. 
in the time in between the planting and the final harvest, the world is all mixed up. With some growing up and root to bearing good fruit, and others that maybe at first look quite similar, growing up to bear fruit that is poisonous. And so now the servants in Jesus' parable begin asking some understandable questions in this mixed up field that we're in. Should we just start ripping out all the bad stuff? The questions are there in verse 27. Master, did you sow good seed in your field? Or did you mess up? You ever felt that way? Jesus, did you mess up? Jesus, if you didn't mess up, how come there's so much evil? And the master in this parable says an enemy has done this. And then the servants reply, okay, you want us to start ripping things out by force? But look with me at verse 29. But he said, no. Don't just start ripping up things by force. Why not? Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I We'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. See, here's a third point that we observe here in Jesus' parable. It's that the Lord's plan in a mixed up world is this, patience now with a harvest perspective. What's the Lord's plan for what He's going to do in this mixed up world that we live in where good stuff and evil stuff is kind of growing up intertwined with each other? His plan is this. Patience now with a harvest in view. The disciples come back to Jesus later on in the day back at the house They say, can you explain a little bit more about that story where stuff got gathered up and burned? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And look at Jesus' more detailed explanation in verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. See, this is the Lord's chosen and wise strategy for life in a world or for interacting with and engaging with a world in which good stuff and evil stuff is growing up side by side. This is the Lord's strategy. Patience, patience now. With an eye to the harvest that is to come. The Lord's strategy is detailed a little more specifically by Peter. 
one of the Lord's disciples, who later described the Lord's strategy to people to whom he was writing a letter when he explained the Lord's strategy like this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Beloved, if you are listening to me right now, I want you to hear this. He is patient toward you, as Peter says. He's patient toward you. But do not mistake his patience toward you as indifference toward sin. Because as unpleasant as it is to talk about, the end is coming. And according to Jesus, like, look, I'm a child of my age. If you left me to write the Bible, I'd be slow to include this stuff. But according to Jesus, for those who do not repent, for those who do not belong to his kingdom, This is the end that is to come. It's described with terms of judgment like this. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't know what all of that imagery refers to. Gathering things up to be burned in a fiery furnace with such an experience that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what all of those pictures burning, weeping, gnashing of teeth. I don't know precisely what that will mean or look like, but I know this. Jesus isn't using play around words. He's using these serious images to get our attention. To say to some, wake up. The Lord is patient toward you. But don't mistake his patience for indifference. His patience now is a prelude to a judgment that is to come then. So what should we do? Peter uses this one simple word, repent. Beloved, what should you do? Repent. Follow Jesus. Turn back to the Lord. And find mercy and hope in Him. Let me just talk for a second. Youth, if you've stayed awake this long, good for you. Good job. Youth leaders, if you stayed awake, way to go. The older we get, the harder that gets. But listen, I I just wonder whether young people or not so young people, I wonder if there are some people who have been kind of hovering around Jesus and his teachings for a little while, and there's something in your head that's like, someday the Lord is going to do something to really wake me up, and you've been waiting for that moment when the Lord just kind of gets a hold of you. And listen, I just want to say, what do you think these words are here for? Why do you think Jesus puts this stuff here if not to wake you up? 
If not to get a hold of your heart, if not to draw you back to him in repentance, if not to draw your heart to say, I'm ready to be baptized and I'm ready to begin that journey of following Jesus with the hope of forgiveness and life forevermore with him. Why do you think Jesus says this stuff? Beloved, for you. So even today, turn to Jesus. Put your hope in Him. And for all who do, for all who do, Jesus gives us this incredible picture in verse 43. As shockingly, as shockingly terrible as the description is of that place that is set aside for those who will be gathered up and removed and and taken to a place that is like fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth. As terrible as that description is, so much more is, is it glorious, the description that Jesus gives of what it will be like in the end for those who belong to His kingdom by faith and repentance. Look at this description. Then, in the end... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. I'm going to borrow a page out of Josh Anderson's book for just a second, and maybe not all of you will understand it. But for those who are at the youth retreat, isn't it good news when we stop and think about how well-fathered we are in the kingdom of God? How good Our Father is. And when we turn in repentance and faith and join His kingdom, we discover the kingdom of the Father as Jesus puts it. But not only that, we discover that we're kind of drawn into His glory. Shining like the sun. Now just like I said a minute ago with these pictures of Fire and weeping and gnashing. I don't know fully what that refers to. I'm not sure I can fully comprehend it. In the same way, I'm not sure what it means for like my wife Katie to shine like the sun. I mean, I think she's beautiful and radiant. But Jesus says, one day she's going to shine like the sun. You tracking with me? Like this is like, it explodes our brain a little bit. We need the imagination of someone like C.S. Lewis for a minute here. That um, Oxford literature professor who thinking deeply about some of these issues of what it will mean to shine like the sun. He talks about some of the most glorious things that we see and, and experience in this world are things that we behold Maybe something bright and glorious like the sun itself. Maybe something glorious like the brightest stars in the universe in all of their majestic glory. Maybe it's something beautiful that we perceive like hearing the most glorious music that you've ever heard. And C.S. Lewis in his wonderful imagination says it like this. He says... At this moment in time where we live right now, we perceive glory, but we cannot mingle with the splendors we see. We see the glory of the sun, but we can't mingle with it. We see the glories of the stars, but we can't mingle with it. We hear the beauty of a majestic uh, majestic music, but we can't mingle with it. We just perceive it. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But he adds, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that... It will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in to that glory. And when all the suns and the brightest stars have passed away, he points out, each one of you will still be alive. And when the glory of the sun has passed away, those who belong to the kingdom of heaven will shine with all the glory of the sun itself. It's too wonderful to imagine. 
And so here is the appeal that the Lord's patience now puts in front of us. As we perceive His plan, which is patience now toward you, beloved, with an eye to the harvest that will come then, with very different outcomes, as different as fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and getting in to the glory and shining as the sun. With outcomes so radically different, the Lord's plan of patience now toward you, beloved, it invites you today to come to Him, to join into His kingdom through repentance and faith. In fact, if there's somebody here who hears this parable about the wheat and the weeds, and you say, I feel like my life is more of a weed kind of life. I want to point out that the way that the people who belong to the enemy and the people who belong to the kingdom of God grow up in this world, it's so indistinguishable at first glance that you yourself might not even realize in which category you will ultimately belong. And you all know that I love the North African preacher, St. Augustine, who loved this parable deeply and wrote hundreds of pages about it. I'll spare you the hundreds of page version. But when he preached to his congregation in North Africa about this passage, and he described the difference between these two ends, he was quick to add that in the kingdom of heaven, even one of the weeds might be transformed into wheat. And so today, as we consider these very different outcomes at the end of the Lord's plan, and as we consider his plan for patience now, let me invite you to turn to him, to trust in him, and to begin to taste the very first bits of glory in a story that has much further to go. Turn to him. But there's still one more issue that we need to grasp before we wrap up paying attention to this parable. And the issue is this. If we belong to the kingdom of heaven, if we're disciples of Jesus, what's our role in this story? What's our role? The servants of the master in Jesus' parable are eager to figure it out. When do we get to start kicking butt? Like you're all for righteousness and you're all for justice. We see a lot of evil and we see a lot of the devil's work. Like when do we get to get in on this? But notice Jesus' answer to them first in the parable. Let me read it again. Beginning in verse 29. Do you want us to go and gather them in? He said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. And you can almost imagine the servants like, do we get to be the reapers? And perhaps that's part of what inspires the disciples of Jesus, like Peter, to come back to Jesus and say, tell us more about that one. When do we get to lasso people up? And Jesus says, let me break it down for you. Let me tell you a little bit about that time of gathering that is to come. Did you notice who the reapers are in verse 39? The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers, sorry disciples, not you, the angels, which suggests this fourth point. What is our task in a mixed up world? Our task is like 
the Lord's plan. Patience now. With a harvest perspective. Patience now. With an eye to the harvest that is to come. Who are the reapers? The reapers are not the disciples, but angels. And I think in this, Jesus is saying something important. Listen, in this world, there are other passages of Scripture I could go to to show you why, as Jesus' followers, we should oppose injustice. And we should speak up in love. And I could take you to other passages in Scripture that would show you that as the church, we cannot simply shrug our shoulders at unrighteousness. And in fact, as the church, at times, we need to do what the New Testament teaches and we need to follow what is sometimes called church discipline. Telling people that if you want to be counted among those who belong to the church, then your way of life needs to be characterized not by sinless perfection, but by repentance and faith. It could take you to other passages of Scripture that would show us that Yes, we should resist injustice in the world. And yes, through church discipline, we should address unrighteousness in the church. But what is our default posture to be in a mixed up world? Our default posture is that we are called to follow the Lord's own posture. Because justice is coming then but because it isn't ours ultimately to dish out anyway, we are enabled to be people who live with a patience and a patient willingness to suffer long in the process of doing good and faithfully bearing witness. In an interesting way, Jesus calls us to be apocalyptic people. He calls us to be disciples who are deeply aware of the apocalypse that is to come. He calls us to be people who have eyes to see what people around us remain willingly blindfolded to. I don't want to hear about the judgment that is to come. Jesus wants his eyes wide open, aware of the judgment that is to come. But how do we live as apocalyptic people? With patience and a harvest perspective. Which means we've got to spread the word. There is a harvest coming. There is a judgment. We've got to tell people about it. But We've got to spread the word in a certain way. That reflects the heart of our Lord Himself. You see, apocalyptic disciples tell the truth with urgency, but not with arm twisting or coercion. Apocalyptic disciples must tell the truth with persistence, but not with panic. In fact, Later on, the New Testament gives us a description of how we're to interact with evil around us in this world. And the description goes something like this in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to who? You tell me. It's on the screen. Everyone. Not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him 
to do His will. It's a picture of how apocalyptic disciples do ministry. We realize how deep and how dangerous and how serious the stakes are. There is an enemy at work in this world and he is out to take captives. And as apocalyptic disciples, we are not afraid to correct. In fact, we must correct. But as we spread the word with urgency, we don't do it with arm twisting. As we spread the word with persistence, we don't do it with panic. As we correct, even as we correct, we do it with a kind of gentleness that realizes it's not my job to reap anyway. We do it with a kind of gentleness and a kind of kindness that says, just as it was the Lord's kindness that led me to repentance, perhaps He will be pleased again to use kindness to lead others to repentance as well. You see, Jesus tells us that the end is coming. Yes, we live now in a world that is all mixed up and there's good and there's beauty and there's glory and there's also evil and there's also pain. There's also an enemy. And how do we live in a world that is all mixed up and yet in the middle of a story of redemption? Here's how we live with patient hope rooted in the Lord's own harvest perspective. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.